0: Through Conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities.
1: It was such a pleasure to be in conversation with Dr. Martha Eddy. Martha is a registered somatic movement therapist, teacher of body-mind centering, and a certified movement analyst with a doctorate in movement science. She's on the faculty at Empire State College, SUNY, and Princeton University. She is the founder of the non-profit organization Moving for Life, as well as the somatic movement therapy training Dynamic Embodiment. Martha is a passionate advocate for health through somatic awareness and active embodiment with a lifelong commitment to the art of dance. In today's conversation, we spoke about Martha's rich and diverse history with the somatic arts, her chart mapping the history of the somatic failed and its history, principle-based practices, and really so much more. One note, there seem to be some internet issues on my side, causing brief audio issues during my speaking moments. I greatly apologize for this and have done my best to edit it up as much as possible. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hi.
2: Hey, apologies. We had a big celebration that was supposed to be a half an hour, and of course it went on an hour and 10 minutes. (laughs) So. Well, we were celebrating the 10th anniversary of Global Water Dances, which went from being a a day when somewhere around 100 countries around the world were involved with dancing for clean and safe water to now having a five day festival. And it was phenomenal. We had nine hours of video shown throughout three days period. And then some people did do live performances despite COVID. And, um, we also did flash mobs and, you know, various social media blasts. Fun. That's what we were celebrating. When
3: I sort of first came up with this idea, you were one of the first people I wanted to have on because mm-hmm. I'd heard you before. Um, and I, you know, I mentioned, I haven't read your book yet, but it's on my, like my mm-hmm. list of two reads. Uh, and I know that there's an importance and, you know, there was a, a picture in one of my trainings—I don't remember what training—but your your family tree picture I find so mm-hmm. uh, you know so relevant for for many disciplines mm-hmm. and and in some ways that alone has been a great gift to the community.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So yeah, we'd love to just kind of chat about you. Whether we talk about the the global waters, or we talk about books coming up, or we talk about your your history—all of that's good.
2: I just—it's another fun story, which is that my husband was the one that said you really should do a chart because that's what people are gonna want and that's what's gonna circulate. So he kind of predicted that cool well, that that you got so, to use it. And then so. I'm also curious whether people teach about Dorothy and I think her last name was Nulty.
3: Dorothy Nulty um, yeah. she's she as I understand it Nikki maybe you know more she was a student of Dr. Rolf, or she was a role for she's in the history and in the lineage. Uh, I think she was one of the, just the sort of the history of the is that Judith was the person who sort of was the founder, I guess you could say, or, or Dr. Rolf brought Judith on to be this. And when Judith left, left there were a few people. And I think Dorothy might have been one of them that were like helped evolve it more. But Dorothy mm-hmm. might have been before that. But I know that she was involved with it. Uh, uh, and I don't know if she was, a, yeah, I don't know that she's, her, her name comes up.
2: Uh, Good. I, I asked because the book, Mindful Movement, my book is going to go into a second edition. So any, you know, fine tuning on history and stuff, or, I could only do as much as I could do really from book learning. And I started right. this research in 2002. So there was definitely the internet, but there's so much more available now. People are, other people yeah. are writing their own histories or Young people are doing dissertations and master's theses, so um, I had said Rolf movement's less known and was developed with the help of Judith Aston and Dorothy Nulty. Um, yeah. yeah, so that yeah. was that was what we understood was that the two of them really helped establish it. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think that there's a lot, there's a lot more. Um, but you start to get into political, and also he said, she said. Yeah. Actually, in that case, she said, she said. But um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty relatively accurate. Right. So what I was gonna ask for for you is sort of, um, you know, what brought you into this whole field? Like, how did what, what was your history with getting involved in somatic, and how did you come here?
2: I'm thinking about Geo Hall right now, and I don't know where Geo Hall is, but Geo Hall was the first rolfer I ever met. And this is something we call the Boulder of the East. So there you are in Boulder, Nikki. And I was living in Amherst, Northampton area. And I was an undergrad in college coming in with a dance background involved in dancing avocationally, and studying social sciences, which actually then shifted into science, which then went back to political science. Anyway, it was, it was a journey undergrad. Um, and it just so happened that Moshe Feldenkrais was renting our college for his trainings Uh, And that, I think, might be why Gio was there. I'm not completely sure whether he was studying Moshe's work or just gravitated towards it. So the Feldenkrais community was there. Gio was there uh, as a rolfer, and he was definitely a teaching rolfing um, and had worked, you know, directly with Ida Rolf. And then... um, My own teacher was developing her work newly, and that was Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen, who was a friend of my dance teacher. So that's how I happened to meet. And my dance teacher, who I like to say by name, and at the time, her name was Francia McClellan and now is Tara Steppenberg, um, was studying with Irmgard Bartene in the summers between semesters. So... I got introduced to the Laban work because as I went off to college, a friend of mine that I just happened to see last night uh, from 50 years ago said to me, 48 years ago, said to me, I just took a semester. She was a dancer also, and we danced here on Martha's Vineyard. And she said, I think you're gonna like this thing called effort shape. So when I got to college, I was reading the course catalog and there was a course, which I love the title of, which was called The Self That Moves. And inside it it mentioned that it was teaching effort shape. So I enrolled for the course and I was completely oblivious to the fact that it was an upper-class person course. So it was for, you know, juniors and seniors, not for first year students. Um, But there I was. So I got the Laban, the Bartenev, the BMC, the Rolfing and the Feldenkrais. And there were some Alexander teachers in the um, in the BMC community. So I was exposed to all of that at the same time in about 1970, between 1974 and 1977. Wow.
0: wow, that's a, quite a plethora of <laughs> beautiful somatic minds that you
2: were exposed to. Yeah. So I got to watch Moshe teaching. Uh, you know, the buzz was out that you could visit and just watch. And of course, that's what you're supposed to do anyway. You're not supposed to write notes or anything. So you're kind of visualizing and doing. So it was all good. Yeah. Yeah.
3: What you had is it's what a lot of people... Actively seek out, and you just kind of had it dropped on you. So, what What a gift,
2: exactly. Um, Elaine Summers is someone who I like to list in the second generation. So, part of this genealogy, I call it, of somatics, uh, this chart that I created with the help of my husband, Blake Middleton, um, has. I sought out, like, who were the eight people that have training programs today? There are many people that have other work. Um, And actually, it turns out that there was a resurrection of some of the earlier work, like the Middendorf work and some of the other even um, Gindler work. So what I'm getting at are some of the European roots of somatics, And but I was aware of, you know, Alexander, Feldenkrais, Traeger, Rolfing. Barteneff, is all these kind of either turn of the century or early 20th century thinkers, movers that created work. So I named eight of them. And then I saw this next group of eight, and I want to shout out to Elaine Summers, because Elaine lived by serendipity and she loved that word. And so I definitely feel like my early exposure to somatics And we weren't using the word somatics, by the way. It was whatever it was, Elden Christ, Alexander, BMC. um.
0: I was just going to ask you, um, with all the different exposures that you've had with what what we call the somatic pioneers, with all the various influence, how would you define somatic work? Like if regular whoever comes off the street and was like, oh, what's this word? How would you define it?
2: Well, my typical answer is that Thomas Hanna gave us the name as a way to create an umbrella, a connection between, and I, in my book, use the, the metaphor of wildflowers. So I just saw this field of wildflowers. They're all different, but they're all flowers, but they're all wild. You know, everybody's creative, everybody's doing their own thing, everybody's suffering, and everybody's figuring out some way to deal with their suffering, whether it's diaspora from war, or whether it's um, mistreatment from their families, or whether it's an actual accident, illness that they're dealing with. Um, So Thomas comes along and says, there's a Greek word, soma, and this word means the living body. And it is distinct from corpo, which is a body. And that stuck with me. I was like, Oh yeah. So I have a body even when I die, but that body, it may be sacred. It may be special. It may need ritual. It may need a lot of things, but it is going to go back to dust. And it probably, as far as I know, doesn't still hold consciousness as a body. Whereas Soma is living And that means it has the potential for consciousness, whatever we define consciousness as. And there's also, I think, just as importantly, as part of consciousness, a self-regulatory, self-healing mechanism that is living in our bodies. You know, you get a cut and you heal. And to me, that's what somatics is all about. It's the ability from, you know, the classic example or definition is. First-person subjective experience of living in a body. I have a body. I own my body. I experience life through my body. This is what somatic experience is. And um, it goes further for me. It goes into somatic movement. And why would people create somatic movement systems or somatic education systems? Well, because they're not only celebrating the consciousness, but they're also looking at this healing component. This ability to feel more comfortable in our bodies, to reduce pain, to align differently, to uh, perform with more grace and ease. So, that part of somatics is, if I were to put it in one sentence, recognizing that the mind and the body are unified and that they are live, it is the life process of being conscious and self healing that those of us teaching somatic education or somatic movement are attempting to transmit.
3: Oh, that's lovely. It's a really nice way of summing it up. What I, I would be curious is how did you, what was your sort of process of you're in this world in, in the Eastern Boulder or even the far East Esalen, we may even mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. and, you know, and you're immersed in all of this stuff. Where did you go with it? How did you, like, how did it bring you to to where you were? Was there an original plan, even when you were studying dance, that this is sort of all the stuff that you offer now? Was there, or how did that all unfold?
2: There were a couple influences for me. Um, So I was a student. I needed to earn money in the summer, so I had two jobs uh, often in those summer jobs. One was working with little kids, age three to five, in a daycare center. And it happened to be a center where another influential figure had an influence, and that's Barbara Mettler. Barbara Mettler was an early proponent of creative movement as being what dance should be about, like really allowing for free expression. So one of her proteges, Andrea Wolf, was on faculty full time as a teacher in this school and had established a movement room. So she had taken you know, a regular sized classroom and built all sorts of jungle gym kind of wooden equipment instead of the metal. And then we had the outside playground, too. But this will happen to be a school that was kinesthetically oriented because this teacher had had um, an influence. The, the administrators agreed with her and let's work with it. So it was a perfect playground for me. Um, so that was one influence and and I'll come back to it. And then the second was that I would work as a home health aide. And when my job was done and I would cleaned and I'd gotten them their medications, uh, in particular, this one stroke patient, I was like, you know, I'm learning this stuff. If you don't mind, I can stay and volunteer and share it with you. So I was working already, you know, at the age of 20 or whatever age I was with little children and with older adults who had lost their motor coordination and working to help them both improve their movement abilities and their expressive abilities within them. Yeah. So that's just very concrete. Like how did I apply the work? And the work in my case was the Barteneff work, and it was the BMC work. Another parallel story related to this is many of the people that I met in those early years were really vying with my systems better than your system. I mean, that was really evident. It was actually something very off-putting, and I didn't enjoy it. Um, In particular, the older systems were trying to maintain their their identity as as long held important work. Um, and I realized number one, that they existed, so it must be special and that work was amazing. And two, that so were my teachers. And then that what I just said is really important, teachers. So I had two geniuses as teachers at the same time. I then went and studied directly with Ernberg Bartenia by 1979. And I was still studying with Bonnie babish Cohen, who at that point didn't have a certification program. So you just kind of studied forever. And I said, well, let me go get certified in something. And honestly, my interest, and this relates to what I have since developed in, in the system I created called Dynamic Embodiment, is um, more observational accuracy. So I think I mentioned that I came into college with social sciences kind of drawing me, but the sciences also working in, well, my high school years were at a high school that was a science high school. I went to Stuyvesant High School, which was equivalent to Bronx Science High School in New York City. And so I'm always kind of thinking in terms of experimentation research, right? And so... I'm testing and checking and seeing how things are going. So going back to having two teachers, it was evident to me that they were both brilliant. And, you know, I wasn't going to become the follower of one. So I was already recognizing brilliance in more than one place, the kind of multifaceted nature of the somatic field. And I think that was really important for me in, in navigating this world.
0: Could you speak a little bit more to integrating or how you were seeing parallels with the somatic wor- world in science?
2: Mm, okay.
0: I think that's a really unique um, perspective that we haven't heard or is even really that talked about. I mean, somatic and dance are often very, I mean, people get that, mm-hmm. but um but I'm definitely curious in just hearing your, your point of view of how the science and also I, what I read a little bit on your website is semantic and politics.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And how this could, you know.
2: Yeah. I'm excited out. about this Let's question about the science. Cause I don't think anybody's ever really asked it in any kind of, um, you know, podcast or video interview before, uh, I did just, have an article come out, not mine, but someone interviewed me on Healthline. So it's it's really exciting to me when, quote, more mainstream medicine starts to recognize the importance of somatics. So there's a lot to talk about here. Um, What I was referring to before is that if you're invested in the scientific method, then you experiment and you watch for results and then those results inform your next behavior. So I brought that kind of level of inquiry to any of my classes. I, you know, as much as the work in a certain sense, and I'm, I'm speaking in particular of Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen's work of Body, Mind, Century, kind of requires uh, just a deep dive into meta. what could be like metaphor. I just asked Bonnie the other day. So here it is 2021. And she goes, you know, it's really not metaphor for me. It's real. Um, But many of us need to start with a metaphor like my organs are moving me versus my muscles or bones. And, And then use pictures that are coming from scientific inquiry, from anatomy, from cadaver work, from all kinds of places to get a picture that then allows for the proprioception to match up with the visual to then actually get a kinesthetic hit on what it is that I'm being asked to experience. Now, there are people now, and I'm very, very excited about this as well, that are really questioning, and here comes the politics, um, being totally accepting of Western medicine and recognizing that it has its roots in a lot of colonial thinking. It has its roots in Descartes, which split the body and mind. So, you know, to get too happy about Western methods is also problematic. And this is where other methods that are also science or certainly research like phenomenology, like action research, like qualitative research, are um, really important to me also. So um, recognizing that, and I, one of my doctor, the chair of my doctoral um, committee, my mentor, Bill Anderson said, you know, if I'm gonna take a pill, I want it to have gone through a double blind study. But if I'm gonna make a decision about what good education is, and he was teaching at Columbia University School of Education, Teachers College um, for 30 years, he goes, I wanna understand the culture. I need anthropology and ethnology to understand that. So we need different kinds of methods depending on what the questions are. So all of that comes with me both when I was a student and as a teacher. And I attempt to, and this is part of somatics for me. To me, the whole point of somatics is first person experience, right? So if a teacher's teaching you, it's already a a, a kind of an oxymoron because the whole thing is you're supposed to experience it yourself. So where do they come together? And they have to come together, I believe, with agency. This is my truth. This is my experience. So how do you test that? You have to test it out by living life and noticing what's happening, which brings me back to my own training. I loved Bonnie's work. i I bought it, put line, and sinker. I embodied it. I felt it. I believed it. No problem. But I still wanted more skill in what is called observer reliability. I didn't know that's what I was looking for. I didn't know that term when I went off to study at the laban Barteneff Institute. But I wanted to sit with people and look at something and find out if we all marked it down separately, whether or not we saw the same thing. And that's what we learned there. So there was that kind of measure measure of accuracy. And the Laban work is a valid and reliable instrument for movement analysis, for movement observation. And for me, that that is fantastic. It just makes um, a case for uh, any of our work. Whoever's touching someone, whoever's doing movement re-education, re whatever you want to call it, uh, or guiding movement over Zoom, if you can observe what started, what happened, and what's changed, you're actually doing research. And if you have a reliable system like lava movement analysis to talk about it with, you can at least communicate with the other people who know it. And then you can also translate it into a language that works for whoever else doesn't know it.
0: Well, in that system that you're talking about being, being able to, what did you call it? Something observable? What were you observer it?
2: reliability.
0: Yes. Is there observer reliability. I mean, that feels, you know, second nature because that's a lot what rolfing is, is you watch people in movement. Granted we have our 10 series to fall back on if, you know if we're not seeing what we should be seeing, but we have that system. But as you are talking, it really was coming home with things that I've shared when when I was a te- I did teach a little bit at the Rolf Institute. Is by being by observing, you're really keeping it authentic to the person and not prescribing a system that may have been really nice and may feel really good. Um, But that's, that's a a system that was a cookie cut one. Mm -hmm. And I have a plethora of fitness modalities and what drove me crazy. A lot of them are in Pilates, gyrotonic, gyrokinesis. And I always felt like the odd duck because I don't come from a dance background and all the choreographed and like having to know these sequences it was frustrating for me because I was like, but my body wants to do this one. (laughs) I don't wanna go to what you just told me that I had to do. And it was always so frustrating when I would have to do my tasks because, you know, choreograph is not not in my, my genes. I really like to, I guess, improv or really move in the way my body's speaking. And it's also how I have, worked with clients is really going from what I'm the exercise. I love everything I've learned, but it's really just to have this gigantic tool bag that when something presents, I'm like, Oh yeah, that movement really does fit for this, this need that I'm seeing.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy about this show because I want my students to hear you say all that. It's like, In my estimation, one is not a great dynamic embodiment practitioner, unless you begin from what I call keen observation. Now, truth of the matter is I give so few techniques or strategies that they basically have to figure this out. Um, But there are um, quite a lot of principles, both from the Laban-Bartenyev lineage and from the body mind centering lineage that, um, the tool bag is huge. So it is overwhelming sometimes to figure out after you've seen what's happening, what to pick next as an intervention.
3: I think that comes also with, um, with time and practice, right? You, know, you start to learn. Uh, I, I was just reading, I'm currently studying a biodynamic cranial sacral program. And in a book I was reading, there was a talk of, I think it was a Roland Becker, uh, who was one of the more principal. Founders of sorts, but mentioning basically the difference between techniques and principles. And, and really when you have principles, like you learn all the techniques, right? Get them all in there. But then when you have principles, the technique is, is almost irrelevant because you can see the overlying pattern of the underlying picture and you can bring that technique in. You could also, this metaphor may not work, but our analogy, you could take a BMC technique into a Laban principle and and make it work because you're, you're, you're going, you're going meta over it. And it's really awesome.
2: That's absolutely true. And that particular example of was trippy for me because here I was studying with Tara Steppenberg, formerly Francia and uh, a student, by the way. So one of the things I love about Hampshire college is that the seniors were already faculty, right? They were co-teaching. And so this course was in my first year um, with Diana Levy and Tara Steppenberg. And I would love to tell you later about a course I took towards the end of my career in college, which was called Nature Loves to Hide. So another fantastic title on um, quantum mechanics, also co-taught between a student and a teacher. But getting back to this whole notion of, of just trying something out and principles and techniques. Um, I was learning the BMC work and I'd already had my introduction to the Laban work, which at that point wasn't even called Laban Bertania. We were still, Ermgard was still giving Laban all the credit. Um, it felt like hand in glove. Like, I kept going, everything about the structure of Bonnie Cohen's work feels exactly like what I just did with Irmgard's. So, for instance, they both have a neuromotor base, neurodevelopmental. So, and I looked for that in the, in the Feldenkrais book, uh, books and I was so happy when Elusive Obvious came out because it began to share some of these principles, but I'd already been steeped in neuromaturational principles and later dynamical systems theory principles of how we as first, pers- you know, embryo through to whatever place we get to in our development get to locomote through space how do we get there and when i studied it with ermgard it was the language was condensing and expanding breathing condensing and expanding uh, a head tail connection an upper lower connection a right left body half connection and a diagonal and that was very straightforward and then i get to the BMC work, and they're talking about cellular breathing, navel radiation, meaning tied to the umbilicus and rotating, navel radiation, and, and also expanding out, so navel radiating out from the navel, and then spinal movement, and then homologous and homolateral and contralateral. I was like, this is the same stuff. And so I, and no one was <laughs> citing sources or anything. so I was like, what's going on here?" Um, and it took me a while to find out that it, two things. One, Ermgard and Bonnie were both trained in, as, in science. So Ermgard, when she couldn't find work in coming, escaping Nazi Germany and coming to New York, she became a physical therapist. And Bonnie, Bainrich- Cohen, Loved dancing, but her undergraduate work and into graduate work was occupational therapy. Both of them had to study this science of neuromaturational theory, how babies learn to move. And Ermgard had already translated it into kind of just easier speak, head, tail, upper, lower, you know, kind of spatial, because she was a very spatial thinker. And um, Bonnie was still using the taxonomy of the science world, the homologous, the homolateral, the contralateral. So I had to parse that out and realize they were coming from the same route. And then I started finding out and asking Bonnie, where'd you learn it? And she would say, you know, from Berta Bobath, um, studying with another physical therapist, internships, working in hospitals. But it wasn't until years later that I found out she had actually studied with Armkard Bartenev and done that certification program also. So, In comes the second half of of, um, the BMC work. I'll go from that framework, which is, okay, we've got a developmental construct. So our set of principles are based on how we learn to move and how we can access that learning process, that neuroplasticity at any age. And then the other set of constructs is we have a body and our body is in. Including not just bones, bones and muscles and fascia, but also the autonomic nervous system, the viscera and the fluids and the cranial sacral fluid, by the way. So, we were working with that in the 70s, as well as um, the glands. So, but for me, as we explored them, I was like, oh, that's effort and shape. Because what I was doing is watching the movement that came. And noticing different qualities of movement, which in BMC we would call states of mind, which is very important back to soma, that different parts of our body evoke different parts of our mentation, of our thinking, of our being, of our presenting, of our behaving. And, um, and so we could actually say, oh, that movement is sourced more from the thyroid than the cricoid cartilage. That movement is sourced more from the acromioclavicular joint or the lung, this kind of thing. But I'm going, how do we verify that? And what I loved is I could say, oh, because when you work with the acromioclavicular joint, you've got this precise, direct light movement happening. Whereas when you work with the lung, you've got this indirect, expansive movement happening. So I could describe what was different using the Laban language. And that's what I teach now, is that you can work with these principles and then also observe them, see them. And I think this is what you were saying, Andrew, that you said it's it's through time. You know, you, you figure this out in time. Well, what are you doing in time? You're trying something and you're noticing if it works or not. And then you're trying something else. So you're back to basic experimentation.
1: Yeah,
3: I had one of my Rolfin uh, teachers was great because he gave us, he said, uh, not every teacher teaches the same, which is a, a good and a pro and a con about the institute, but you would test, intervene, retest. And so we would constantly be testing, intervening, retesting. Is, is the change happening? And that change will be both a a physical phenomena that you can observe as well as possibly a well, what are you noticing in your bodies? You know, what, what is, is the person actually, how are they feeling? Mm-hmm. So it's not just always a phenomenal, like our physical observer, observable, it could very well be a experiential observable yeah. thing from there. So when you start talking a lot about the science of it, my, my background as well as I, I worked uh, with computers, I was an IT guy for years. So I always really enjoy the more of the science. I enjoy the more creative uh, ethereal aspect because it's not my natural Comfort and I like getting out of my comfort zone, and I like to kind of combine them. But that science aspect is something that is sometimes I'll sound maybe a little stupid here, and later people will be like, "You're wrong." But like sometimes it's missing from a lot of this. We get into more of the creative, which is great, uh, and you have these experiences which are awesome. But then it's like, but but how exactly? Like you said, but how can I? How can I replicate that? Or how can I? You know, what is the observable thing that I can see that I can I can know that not just this time, that because you know, if you want to work with people, you want to be able to, to, to have those techniques that are adaptable, but sort of say, okay, I know when this person comes and they're moving from their clavicle and they should be moving maybe more so from the lung. Well, how do I, how do I bring that in? And,
2: Beautiful. And, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I'm proud of in my book, but I realized that um, it probably needed more subheaders, is the chapter that gets into kind of the amalgam era. So I I mentioned already the first generation that included Traeger and Rolf and Art you know, Bartania, then the next um, generation being more Elaine Summers, Bonnie Cohen, Emily Conrad, Anna Halperin. Uh, first of all, I'll just say I found it fascinating that when and Judith Aston is in that group um, and Joan Skinner, that they were all dancers and all women. And I look at that um, generation, especially Emily Conrad, Bonnie Cohen and, and Anna Halperin as kind of releasing the emotional life in somatics as well. So that piece, um, so what I'm getting at now is related to that, which is in the third generation. I uh, We have now lots of amalgams happening, people blending different systems. We have people developing new systems. We have hopefully coming in the future, more recognition of non- dualistic Cartesian models that are actually from the global South that really are somatic, but just haven't been given credit where credit's due. Like they stayed holistic and those systems actually have quite a huge scientific inquiry behind them as well. Just looks different because it's not Western medicine. Um, It's like tasted and tested over 2000 years. Why do we know this herb works? Because people really tested it. So with that, I find that the, um, okay, back to principles and techniques, that we do need a certain number of techniques. It's just, it's it's like a, it's like a scaffolding. It's sort of helpful. It's like, oh, I need something. But then if we can go back to these principles, we can really um, also check and just see what What am I using for my strategy? Why did I pick this? So with that said, um, one of the things that was going on in my book is that I didn't differentiate, I think, clearly enough, what is the first-person experience and what is the teaching experience? But I do write about both. So I think that's what you were just talking about, Andrew. There's this feeling of um, not just feeling... I heard in you and echoed in me a desire for a teacher to have enough tools in their toolkit, enough techniques and theories and principles to, um, be able to adjust and adapt. And you were saying this too, before Nikki, to adjust and adapt to each person and to not have to stick to a protocol. Um, like, like you talked about with some of the fitness work, um, on the other hand, what's the point if we haven't actually touched the person and the person isn't able to articulate for themselves what has changed or what isn't changing or what they're just, ex- I like to say, it's not always about change. Sometimes it's just about self-acceptance. Like there's been a rigid armoring to what is, and actually we don't change anything, just release the armor and be who you are. So um, I think this is a really important point. I think we've said it like three times now, this idea that there is the self, you can do somatic work by yourself, you don't really need a teacher, you don't have to pay for it, it's free. But if you do have a teacher, I would hope you're going to pick a teacher, number one, that you jive with, that you feel rapport with, that you trust, and a teacher who is willing to notice whether you're someone who needs structure and a protocol, or you're someone who already is tuned in enough to go, I know what my body needs and let's stick with that. Thank you very much. But still be a guide through that process. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so we're talking about principles. So Rolfine has, I love the principles of Rolfine. One being adaptability. And it's, we want to be adaptable with both. Like to be able to to work with structure and also to be fluid. Mm-hmm. Because there's different times in our lives that um that that's necessary i mean i i think about i have two young kids and i feel like i'm often giving them guiding their choices where it's appropriate to you know like we were traveling and like there's certain ways that you behave on an airplane and in the airport because there is a way of moving That ensures safety and you know, we don't bounce around as much as it might seem fun to be bouncing around in the airplane, you gotta sit still. And but then when we're at the beach or wherever, that's where you get to be fun and fluid or um, I'm actually not just thinking like this in certain ways that we behave in various relatives' homes. Like there's some homes that aren't about running around being wild, and then there's other homes where that is, you know, inviting
2: and welcomed. Thank you for that. Um, It raised so many different ideas, memories for me. I I remember a woman took just a one-time neurodevelopmental workshop with me, and she ended up writing me. She was Asian living in the Americas. And then she went back to Asia, and she had learned to be much more liberal with her child in a restaurant. (laughs) And then she got back to Asia and it was like, oh, my God. And she really had to make a decision about where she wanted to be and where she wanted to be with her kids and how to negotiate that. Similarly, my doctoral research was actually on violence prevention. So I went, you know, it wasn't about somatics. What I was clear on was that I was interested in how the body is important in anger, anger management, conflict, conflict transformation, and possibly violence prevention, certainly trauma. Um, And so some somatic awareness infiltrated everything I did and a few somatic principles made their way into my data analysis. But uh, what I do remember was asking an expert who was a coach, a basketball coach, um, what to do for kids that just like really come from a very different upbringing than what the expectations are, let's say in your school or in your coaching program or whatever. And he was like, kids are so adaptable and it's because of exactly the kind of parenting you just described. They learn, oh, here I behave this way and here I behave that way. And he said, all you can do is create your own island of decency wherever you are. You know, that your rules are fair or as fair as they can be given whatever institutional structures you're still dealing with. So um, very evocative what you just shared about Mm -hmm. freedom and structure, fluidity and form. Very important. And I'm glad you're an improviser within that world that I am very much an improviser too.
0: Um, I'm curious. So, with thank you for that, and I, you had my. I was looking for this book based off of uh your. your you said your dissertation with um preventing violence, violence. Mm-hmm. So the um, I was given this book, The Gift of Fear, mm. and how much that kind of. It's, Really, I mean, you're probably familiar with it. How that book really? I haven't sp- heard that. No, I'm for it. Oh, yeah. So it, it's written with his um, Gavin D. Becker.
2: Okay.
0: And oops, I started the book. <laughs> but he was what is he? He is a detective, and um, but basically, he he basically through all the years of his work as being a detective, hearing the stories of the victims who were able to get away was really speaking to that gut sense, like not sure what it is. It's the person isn't, you know, waving a gun yet or isn't grabbing them, but that that gut sense that you have that this isn't right and how a lot of Women, unfortunately, a lot of these abuse are on women aren't listening to that that gift, the gift of fear because of whatever cultural norms that have shaped how they should be behaving. I don't wanna be rude to the one particular story was a woman um, in New York City was walking up her, her flight of stairs and a strange man was in her door well and, or in the, the stairwell and was like, oh, let me help you with your groceries, grabs them and is like kind of pushing his way into the house or the apartment. And this whole time, she's like, this isn't right. This isn't right. And that's how he made his way into her apartment and locked her in and, and terrible things happen. <laughs> she was able to get away, but this The um, the detective just keeps on sharing these various stories of how our body is talking to us. And we have to, especially in these times of, I mean, there's lots of times we could probably come up of where our body's talking to us that express joy, and, but you get to react on those because that's fun. But when you're the gift of fear is you don't know what to do with it because of not wanting to come off as being the mean person and all that. And it's just, this book was brilliant because it just reminded me too of um, when you're having that and all the other things that happens in your nervous system, when you're having the gift of fear speaking to you, how that gives shape to movement and Mm. wonder why. Wonder what the movement would look different if you, if, you know, hopefully it's a, a fist to the face to, you know, whoever's um, the, per, the, the person who's wanting to create assault. Um,
2: but yeah, I don't yeah, know. I'd love to respond, respond to that. Um, the, the, the word that's just like kind of blaring in my brain right now is reflexes. Yeah. So part of what I teach in neuromotor development, and that very much is taught in body-mind centering and was a big part of the Bartinioff work, and she really looked at, Bartinioff looked at it in terms of Parkinson's disease and other kinds of neurological disorders, um, is so related and was very much related to my early client practice, right? So I'm working with women. And doing body work and doing mostly on the floor body work, movement, clothes, you know, uh, and we're in a fetal position or we're uh, touching someone's feet. And the next thing you know, there's either no response, like completely numb, no response to touch. Or kicking, right? And so, really looking at flexor withdrawal, flexor thrust is has been hugely important for, in particular, women and sexual abuse is something that I have found. Um, a lot of women have withdrawn their ability to kick. You know, there's just something that says it's not ladylike, it's not nice. You know, like you were saying, and that then underlies a lot of other behaviors, like you're talking about, just oh, letting a guy. Carrying my groceries for me into my house, even though my gut, and then this is the second really important thing, is the whole enteric nervous system. I mean, when we started talking about gut brain, we in BMC talked about the abdominal brain, that there was an abdominal brain. And it wasn't until some years later that the amount of neurons that are existent in our guts was really uh, validated and shown. But if we can't align with the gut instinct, we really are missing something. And then also the other sensations, and I've been teaching this for years, what happened, the reason I got into the topic I got into was that I was working. um, This was now probably after I had my master's, I was working on my doctorate or maybe right before um, and I had just said, you know, there's a part of me that cares about conflict resolution and it's something I want to follow. So I tracked down a friend of mine who created the Resolving Conflict Creatively curric- program, which is a curriculum for the New York City public school system. And I shadowed her in California where she was teaching it. And then I came and got trained with educators for social responsibility to become a trainer of how to teach teachers to teach kids to do their own conflict resolution, which is a lot like a somatic process. And when I say it is like to teach someone to feel their own agency, how to speak was the main focus. There were role plays, but the whole body piece, the only piece that was in there was just looking at responses to anger on a physiological level. So I would lecture on that a lot, you know, sweat, heart rate, all that kind of stuff. And just yesterday, I think, or the day before I was listening to NPR and there was a talk, there's a new book out on forgiveness, but also the function of grudges and how grudges can be useful because they give you a sense of agency. It's like, I got that grudge. I'm under control. You may piss me off, but at least I feel my feelings. You know, there's this kind of this holding on that gives you kind of a bound flow that allows you to feel yourself in control. Um, so, what they did was they worked with the grudges, they worked with picturing the grudges and forgiving them, they worked with holding on to the grudges, and they looked at the physiological responses. And basically, it's looking at the physiological responses to anger and how, if you add in forgiveness, you can really reduce. At least you can still be angry, but you might not have at least the physiological piece happening. Or you could still be unresolved, but there's more of a sense that you're going to figure out some other way to work with it than just hold the grudge forever. That's kind of interesting. Following the gut, following the heart, and following the brain are how I work with it. And I, I did something for the Hero Summit on this a while ago. Because um, they were talking about kind of the topic I had to talk on was how you get what you want in life, right? So it was a, it was kind of a preset topic. They wanted me to come in and just talk about how to align your life with meeting a goal. And all I could talk about was, well, if you don't have it on a body level, it probably is not going to happen. You can have the thought, but if you don't have the desire, and then you don't have the gut intuition that you're in the right place in the right time to go with it, you're probably, you know, not going to be as well prepared to make it happen.
3: Yeah. As so much for the day, lovely said, beautifully said.
0: Yeah. I love how you really, um, use somatics in a very worldly
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh examples from i think th- I, this talk has been so great that uh that it hasn't just stayed with the, the although not not knocking the dance community it's just i feel like somatics and dance that th- those are the kind of been the talked about the most and really this really shows how the conversation with you, how it, it is really a much broader and bigger than
2: being useful in the d- dance community. Yeah. And I would love to highlight that I, I'm just so proud of um, the direction my body, mind dancing classes have gone. And so I teach dance class twice a week. So two hours of my week, it's sort of my gift to myself to get to dance with people who love to dance. And the one on Monday nights has been is free through movement research since the pandemic. And so a woman from the New York Times, Gia Corliss, started taking the class, and she decided to write a paper on how somatics seemed to be really helping people through the pandemic. And she talked about Feldenkrais, and there might have been one other somatic modality. And then she talked about my class. And one of the things I want to bring up, and I think it's in, inherent in movement, but some people don't ever find that freedom of expression that you Nikki seemed comfortable with, right? You're like, let me break away from this routine. I just want to follow my body. Some people need help finding that freedom. And so the Body Mind Dancing class does that. I have some phrases that you follow, but I always say, do them any way you want. Do them lying down. Don't do them. Just visualize them. Just these are ideas. Take them or leave them. And when we're in a room together, it is nice when everybody's doing the same thing, but honestly, we've had people lying down the middle and we'd end up dancing around them. It comes like this sort of strangely etheric ritual. Um, but what I'm getting at right now is that movement is important. That we're talking, uh, we're talking fairly functionally right now, like functional awareness of your gut will help you get through. Um, Possible danger. Uh, Functional awareness of reflexes can get you to respond with that punch that you're talking about. Functional um, awareness of the cromio clavicular joint versus the lung, all of that. But then there's the expressive piece. And if there are emotions happening, it is so important to just feel like you move through them. So I did a workshop just for the body mind centering community where we used body mind dancing to grieve anything they lost during the pandemic. So some people lost relationships, some people lost jobs, some people lost actually lost people, you know, in their lives. There were deaths. And everybody had that in mind. They named it in the beginning of class. There were about 20, maybe 25 of us. It was Zoom. And then I took them through a dance class, a lot of calming the nervous system and then finding energy and then expressing and getting a little bit sweaty and then coming back to how are you feeling about this person or this thing or this status in your life? And then how do you move it? And so I'm, I'm just really um, I would love more dance classes to have that level of of depth also. you know.
3: <laughs> Yeah, and just sort of to echo, echo that, I mean, for for me, one of the, in the last year or so, a lot of my own self-work has been through movement practices. And Nikki and I will talk about Rolf movement. Rolf movement itself is, is just a catch-all for a lot of, you know, it's just another name and there's different things that like come out of it. But, you know, the, these embodied practices, whether it was Feldenkrais, I was doing other stuff, profound inner grief that that, that's been there that maybe I didn't even you know know that was just tucked can come out and uh it's not always comfortable but it's always uh it's always welcome later you know it's, it's amazing it's great stuff
2: it's beautiful and and I have to shout out that it was back in like 1974 75 or 76 that I learned about rolfing and rolfing was the first kind of in that sentence, there was releasing held emotion, allowing the pain to come out that's physical and emotional. And I was very affected by that. Like it, it made sense and that permeated then everything I did. It's like, oh, the body holds there, there can be holding of emotion and tissue. Not a lot of people were talking about that. Marion Rosen might have been. I, I think that would be actually an interesting investigation like who were i mean i think of kahuna healing and i think of all kinds of other shamanistic kinds of rituals um in the western tradition i just don't know kind of where that all started although there were people certainly doing um Jungian and or freudian analysis at the same time they were getting body work and that started to open up lots of things
3: yeah and and you had um besides Jungian and freud there was a, a reich i mean a lot of, of reiki stuff was coming out i mean and his i know that his body armoring had an influence on dr rolf and that's you know instead sort of what you're saying mm-hmm. about that there's a sense of penetrating the armor as a mm-hmm. way of getting underneath it
2: yeah yeah and i one of i have two things i want to say one is uh I got to work with the Radix community, which takes one of the zones of the Reikian work, which is the visual zone. And I do a lot of work with vision with children and with adults. Um, I've had my own kind of slight um, lack of aiming strategies, convergence, divergence. And so I just love the work. It's like you get tested for vision, but you don't always get tested for the two eyes and how they work together. Um, So that's become a pet theme of mine so the radix community had me come in and talk about um more somatic approaches to working with vision which i really like so that's one thing and i have i actually have a website called eyes open minds or eye openers Um, then the other was when you talked about being able to just be with the grief that to me is an essential piece of what in the United States we're working on with anti-racism. It's like, if we can't sit with the discomfort of an emotion, whether it's anger, distress, grief, even frozen trauma and just be with it, then we're probably going to try to fix something that might not even be ready to be fixed. Or we attempt it and we fail because it's so huge and then we give up. But if we can sit, and this is very much a source from Resma Menikin's model of my grandmother's hands. He's uh, trained in somatic experiencing and has his own work of cultural somatics and somatic abolitionism. And that work has been profoundly helpful and it dovetails with. Everything we already were doing in Body, Mind, Centering in particular, where emotions were flying all the time. And we would just be with them because Bonnie Cohen in particular is a great model of being present with whatever is happening. It's just part of life. Let's be with it. We're not trying to fix it yet. We're going to feel into it. It often, like a dance, has its own denouement. It's just going to resolve itself by just letting it have time and witnessing And so thank you also for before when we talked about when I talked about looking at things and observing. It's really important to know that in the dynamic embodiment model, the type of observing is, first of all, multisensory. So we're listening, we're smelling, we're touching, we're um, feeling what our own kinesthetic empathy is as we're observing. So that's part of it. But also when we are working with people in terms of choosing interventions, there's also a kind of multisensory component there that includes dialogue always. So you know what again, what gives a person agency, what allows them to lead the session and just how can we help facilitate either what they're saying they need, or what um, we're both kind of detective exploring together until we land on something that feels like it's really useful
3: Yeah, Wow, it reminds me that. I had done a meditation training that was more of an embodied meditation training, and one part of the things we talked about was really highlighted there that so sort of everything has a everything resolves itself right. The stages of beginning, rising, increasing, and ending, and when you sit with it and you let it be, it, it plays itself out. Well. It sort of just reminds me of that there, and it it also reminds me of this like this beautiful dialogue that the three of us are in right now, which is both. Like, I'll use Bonnie's terms from what little I studied with her. There's a very sperminess to this, um, you know, it's like, Ooh, which is great. And at the same point, I feel like we could probably actually talk for hours. And I don't know necessarily, Hey, I don't necessarily want to edit for hours, but be, uh, <laughs> but be, you know, people listening as well. And there's somewhat of a sense as, as I was hearing you say that I was also feeling a bit in my body of like, and this is also a great place of as this conversation is Taking it as sort of its milieu, it's it's partly it's that, but then it's also a sense of like, but this isn't maybe over. It's just over for now, and then there there'll be another talk at another point where we sort of rise. Uh, so just echoing how my how my body and my experience is totally aligned with where you are and what you're saying, and Nikki, I don't know if it's the same for you.
0: I just want to acknowledge that you that you're such a wonderful gift to to the somatic world. It seems like you you I'm just sitting here listening to you are able to acknowledge so many teachers and speak to their teachings and how you've been able to um, learn and create something amazing for yourself and another way of sharing this great work. So I just want to thank you that I've really enjoyed and learned a lot from our, our sit down.
2: I have a so question good. for you, Andrew. Um, yeah. I've been thinking, and it has to do with this Denouement idea, but um, when I studied some bio um, dynamic cranial sacral therapy, there was a, a movie of paramecium inside the body going to heal a wound. Have you ever seen that? It's like a no. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't it's think a so. Good one. That would have been super cool just like but if we're if we're doing audio you're not going to really see it anyway, but it it's just it's talk about self-healing. It's just like everything goes to try to help the wound and and, and I think it might have even been in a tree, not in a human. I can't even remember. Um, oh, it was in the version that's taught here in the U.S. The guy in Florida,
3: a pleader, uh, Michael Michael Shea. Oh,
2: what is it is. Yeah, Michael Shea.
3: Michael Shea. Michael Shea. Michael Shea. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. Cool. He's, biodi- he's more biodynamic.
2: Yeah, I studied yeah. with him a little, and, and then I, I didn't... think he,
3: he was a rolfer, I think
2: actually. That makes sense. Yeah. I think so too. I got yeah, his. I just don't have it here.
3: We have a lot of, like, the Rolfers have a lot of uh, limbs, you know, that people don't like, you know, people don't know that Gil Headley was a Rolfer. People don't know that Peter Levine was a Rolfer. Peter Levine, yeah. I
2: just learned like two weeks ago. That's so Yeah. yeah.
3: We have a lot of uh, Don and Johnson. Uh, there's a lot that of, I knew. People like,
2: <laughs> he at yeah. least mentions it.
3: Yeah. So so uh, for, for people like, you know, people who are really interested, we'll post your your website, you gave it to me in an email, but why don't you just share it again so people can hear you say how to find you.
2: Sure, okay. So um, if you're trying to find me, I have kind of an index page, drmarthaeddy.com and on it, you'll find Dynamic Embodiment has its own website. Global Water Dances has its own website. The Eye Openers has its own website. My work with kids in schools, Wellness CKE. So anyway, you just go there and you can find everything. And a, a calendar, calendar, a calendar that shows what I'm, and then I also have a calendar that shows what I'm doing every day. And so there's some free things and there's some pay, there are certification programs, as well as just drop off, you know, drop-in classes.
3: And I'll link to your book as well. And so people can can find your book and get even more of just the, the tad bits we've we've expressed here, because there's so much more in that.
2: Terrific, thank you so much. Yeah. Well,
3: thank Thank you for, for making time. It's been, it's just been really great. I've really enjoyed it.
2: Really lovely. I agree. It makes me want to go to a right now.
0: <laughs> thank you so much.
2: Really a pleasure. Have fun with your kids. Thank you. Yeah. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to us at Touching into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Dr. Eddie at drmarthaeddie.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, We'd appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye-bye.